This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 28th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. For us at the Journal, the COVID-19 outbreak seemed like something temporary last spring. We left the office for what we thought would be a few weeks at home, and we started this podcast to discuss COVID-19. We thought it might last for a few episodes. But last week, we recorded the 75th of these temporary podcasts. So in the spirit of 76, I thought that today might be a good time to take an interim look back at what medical researchers and clinicians have done well and perhaps not so well so far. And I'd like to do that with an eye on the future, not just for this pandemic, but for any outbreak that we might see. So to start, even before vaccines became available, some countries had a good deal of success with controlling the epidemic. What lessons do you see in those experiences? Steve, let me start with this one. I think there's a very mixed picture. Different countries, of course, have approached this differently. And at the beginning of the epidemic, and perhaps still now, no one knew what the best way was to control disease. And in fact, as I said, I think that remains true now. The countries that did best and have continued to do the best have had some combination of political will and luck. It's good to be New Zealand. Not all countries like New Zealand could have pulled it off because they have had the ability to really bear down and bear the financial costs and the personal costs of locking down in a big way. But they're also an island and they can control what comes in and what goes out of the island. And so it's been much simpler for them than for many other countries to control the disease. So that's an example of success and really continued success. But we've had many countries that did well at the beginning and then have had more trouble recently. We had countries that did poorly at the beginning. I probably would put the U.S. in that category, but have improved by taking up vaccines very early. And so I'm not sure that there's a single lesson to be taken away. I mean, I think, Steve, for me, this points out how global we are. When this pathogen emerged, it spread very quickly, and we need to appreciate how globally interconnected all countries are, peoples are, and pathogens can be, have been, will be. And it points out the importance in investing in critical infrastructure. You know, the idea of testing, contact tracing, quarantine, isolation, basic public health things which different countries had different levels of readiness in their infrastructure and something that we don't always invest in because it doesn't necessarily solve an immediate problem today, but it's necessary for our preparedness and being ready for these problems which continue to emerge. Also, the complexities of responding when we don't understand a pathogen and the controversies 18 months ago of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic or symptomatic infection, and the ability for countries to understand that and the scientists to share it so they could enable their responses to be appropriately directed. So I think we learned a lot, and there are many lessons that we need to think about as we go forward and invest in our ability to respond to the next one of these as well as this one, which unfortunately is still ongoing. Lindsay, you bring up the idea of infrastructure, public health infrastructure, and that is something that was sorely tested both here and internationally. And it is a place where we have to 
give a lot of thought. We've seen public health infrastructure that has not coped well in many cases before. I'm thinking specifically about the Ebola outbreaks in various parts of Africa, where we know what to do, but it's been difficult to execute on what we should have been doing during many past outbreaks. In the current epidemic, we've seen different sorts of responses from the public health apparatus in different countries and a not terribly well-coordinated international response. I think that to concentrate on the US, the response shows up some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of our system. We have a very locally oriented public health system, which is great if you're doing contact tracing for certain diseases, for sexually transmitted infections or for surveillance of physiologic abnormalities in newborns. But it doesn't work well for an epidemic that's affecting the entire country all at once and which involves a lot of international trade. And I think we have to decide going forward whether we want to stick with a very fragmented system or create a system that, at least in the case of public health emergencies, is rationalized across the entire country. No single state has the power to control an epidemic. No matter how well a state responds or how poorly it responds, it's going to be susceptible to whatever all of its neighbors are doing. And I think we really have to give that some thought. In addition, we have to think about public health laws in this country, which are kind of hit or miss in various places. And we have to decide are we going to empower people and how are we going to provide oversight to those people who we do empower to take very strong measures in cases like this? I mean, Eric, you're pointing out resiliency in our public health capability and response. It's very different for sexually transmitted infections than, let's say, for Ebola, which has more of a contact mode or Zika or dengue, which is mosquito-borne or flu or SARS-CoV-2, which is respiratory. And we have to build in the resiliency in the system to be able to handle very different methods and modes of transmission. And the global, national, and state framework of laws to control this need to really be thought about given the speed at which some of these pathogens can spread and therefore the implications as we've witnessed over the last year. One other lesson I'd take away is that this is basically a disaster response. And we do have experience with disasters, but the disasters that we deal with usually are temporally very different. Hurricanes, tornadoes, even wildfires last for hours or days or weeks, maybe a month or so at the outside. But here we have a persistent epidemic and we don't really have the tools to deal with it. And on top of the length of time, there are a couple of problems. First off, there are legislative issues. How do we sustain a response over time and how do we choose who can make the important choices that have to be made? But there's also the financial commitment. When there's a huge hurricane that hits a city, we often pour billions of dollars into trying to recover from that hurricane. In the case of an epidemic, you certainly have to make a similar financial commitment, but that commitment comes in different ways. For example, closing down businesses costs billions of dollars, but it's very different from putting up temporary shelters or providing mortgage relief for people 
who are hit by a hurricane. It's a different sort of money, and it can be more obvious to the individuals affected than the government just coming in and putting out money. It seems like more of an affront in some ways. So I think that for the next epidemic and for the remainder of this epidemic, we have to kind of change our mindset a bit. At the beginning of this epidemic, it was very difficult for clinicians to know how to manage infected patients and how to advise people on the best ways to prevent infection. So when we have that next epidemic, what can we do better? This is an area where there are a lot of lessons, and I think some of those have been learned, I hope, and some of those we still have to consider. On this podcast early on, we expressed our frustration over and over again on how we were unable to treat patients most effectively because we simply didn't know what the best choices were. And there was a relatively slow startup to getting research done. There are a lot of reasons for that, a lot of good reasons for that, but medical research has not occurred at the pace that we need it in an emergency. And I think that there are better ways to do it and better ways to anticipate what we need. Some of them are attitude. Let me just talk about attitude first. When a new disease comes along like this, we don't know how to treat it. And I think that it's hubris to think that you know the best way to treat a patient with one of these infections. It's been certainly proven during this epidemic, that guesses weren't particularly good and that it really required research to do it. And I think that it is incumbent on clinicians to understand that and therefore help drive the research that's necessary to be able to provide the best care to their patients. And so at the beginning of the epidemic, that means that people have to be both patients and research subjects in order to advance knowledge, and provide the best therapy to those individuals at the same time. So I think that was one of the big lessons that I hope we've learned. I think we might have learned. I mean, I think, Eric, it's complicated, as you suggest. The speed of our response was no match for the speed with which this virus spread, given characteristics of its transmission and how globally connected we are. And with that, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, severe illness, and death. And that was incredibly frustrating for all of us. What needed to happen early on was establishing facts about the virus, its transmission, and its illness. And there was a lot of haziness about what the facts were. And with that, a lot of distraction with false narratives and misinformation. And I think that frustrated the response. I think that the community responded as fast as it could, developing studies in ways that it had never done before. But we didn't have the structures for this, be it how we communicate electronically, through the internet, through virtual communication, while we were responding to how quickly this was spreading through the community. So in some sense, I think the speed with which the scientific community responded was amazing. On the other hand, it was woefully inadequate given the speed of COVID transmission. And this challenged us because with a patient in front of us who is sick, it is very hard not to do something, even if that something has little basis in the scientific process. And that is a difficulty of the human condition that we have to manage. 
the discipline to be able to rigorously study something quickly and to have the structures in place to allow us to do that. And I think that's something I hope we've learned from this event is to how to pre-position the kind of structures we need to be able to do studies rapidly. But it is really challenging when you have a patient in front of you who is desperately ill and no known treatment for that condition to not do something. But we should not confuse doing something with knowing that it works until we have the right process to establish the facts about it. I think that this led to another problem, which was that there were a few favorite therapies that were considered early on in the epidemic and everyone rushed to test those same therapies. So there was a lack of coordination among study groups. And that meant we asked the same question over and over again, oftentimes in small underpowered studies that didn't really provide us with answers or provided us with very unclear answers at best. So another lesson I take away is that we should have more coordination among research groups. In fact, I think that's probably a lesson for all of research, not just for what happens during a pandemic. Large randomized clinical trials are incredibly expensive, and we really should be looking at each other within our own fields of study and saying, how do we best get this done as a community rather than what is the best study for our individual group? As you suggest, early in the outbreak, most of the focus was on treating people who were infected, the patient in front of you. Was that a mistake? I'm going to um, echo what Lindsay just said, which is we have to care for people who are sick. That's our job. The problem isn't so much providing care as it is providing the most effective care when we don't know what the most effective care is. In the case of COVID-19, we knew what sorts of supportive care were most critically important. Um, It turns out that we learned more about that over time. But we could make a good guess as to how to take care of patients with pneumonia. We do that all the time. And in fact, supportive care turns out to be the most impactful thing that we can do for this disease because the actual agents that have been developed to treat disease have rather small effect sizes. So we really need to take care of patients. It turns out that some of the aspects of supportive care that improved over time, for example, turning patients into prone position for ventilation, I don't think we knew that or had a clear idea of that at the very beginning, but that turns out to have a rather substantial impact. Nevertheless, we knew how to take care of pneumonia patients, and that was really important. It was much more difficult to choose among therapeutic agents. And I think a lesson for all of us is that our guesses were not particularly good about those. So I think that clinicians generally did the best they could. But again, I'd emphasize that it was important to think about research as part of treatment very early in the outbreak. I think that, Steve, taking care of the patient in front of you is the most important thing that a physician or care provider does. So I think that was central. I think as I reflect back on the last 18 months, it's having the humility to know what I know works and what I don't know works, and to be very careful about being overconfident that treatment A is the only right answer without proper data to establish that. And I don't mean that in terms of intubating someone who's hypoxemic 
and cannot breathe. I mean that more in terms of the different kinds of treatments that we were deploying therapeutically and systematically. I also think we had to appreciate that we didn't understand this pathogen or the disease it occurred. So we were defining the pathogenesis while we were caring for our patients. And we saw that early on with a more acute viral illness and later on with a more dysregulated inflammatory response. This phases of illness and differential pathogenesis had to be dissected out for us to realize that the illness had different forms and those different forms of illness likely require different types of interventions. We currently think about early on antiviral strategies and later on anti-inflammatory strategies. And then we realized that there was a clotting diathesis and so antithrombotic strategies. So while we are caring for our patient with a disease that is poorly understood, as Eric suggested, we have to realize we're doing research to define the illness. And as part of defining the illness, we can then define when and where different treatments may make sense, be they supportive in nature or targeting the underlying pathogenesis. And I think we have a lot to learn from our oncologic colleagues who do this systematically all the time. The difference there is the kinetics. Malignancy often manifests and causes severe illness over a much more prolonged period of time and in smaller numbers acutely than we see with these explosive infectious disease outbreaks. So I think we can learn from our collateral services, if I think beyond infectious disease, to how they approach these problems and realize that there are lessons to be learned there. A key difference is how much is unknown at the starting point and how rapidly it spreads. And therefore, we have to have processes in place to move as quickly as the pathogen. So I think there's a lot to be learned and how to best care for the patient in front of me. But we need to realize that learning is part of caring for that patient and the other patients who will be in front of us tomorrow. I love the model of oncology as applied to infectious diseases and in particular to outbreaks of infectious diseases like this. The key driver for all of clinical research studies is that there be equipoise and that the different groups you're comparing are treated, as far as you can tell, equally well. And I think it was relatively easy to establish equipoise early in the outbreak since we didn't know if anything worked. And I think that's where we fell down a little bit because there were agents that were very hyped. There was politics around treatment that didn't make all that much sense. And it made it appear that there may not be equipoise. In retrospect, a lot of these treatments failed. They really had no effect whatsoever. And it's clear that looking backward, there really weren't the data out there to decide that something was superior without testing it. So I think that's going to be very important. I think there's another lesson that is very specific for outbreaks, though, and that is the kinetics of the development of therapies. Vaccines take a long time to develop. One of the miracles, well, the miracle of the COVID-19 outbreak has been the incredible rapidity with which the vaccines were developed, but it still took a while. It doesn't happen overnight. Unfortunately, therapies, since we're talking about therapies right now, 
can take even longer. Small molecule drugs generally have a very long timeline for development. And that means that you can't start at the beginning of an epidemic to develop a drug that is really going to have an effect during the course of that outbreak. You're stuck with either repurposing drugs that are already out there and already approved so that you know that they're safe and they've been in lots of people. Things which are on the shelf and in late phase clinical trials, they've already been into humans. You can get them into a large trial relatively rapidly or biologic agents because it's a simpler timeline to develop a biologic. Aside from those three classes though, we really can't make a drug from scratch. And so in the case of coronaviruses, we had a not very deep bench, I think, for small molecule antivirals. And that was shown up. We had a handful of things that were in late phase clinical trials, a handful of things that looked like they might work in vitro. Some of them had small effects, some of them had none, but there was not a big winner among what we had. My guess is that three years from now, four years from now, we will probably have a very effective coronavirus agent, but it's not going to match the kinetics of what we need. What has been faster is existing drugs like the anti-inflammatories that do seem to have some effect on disease, although only in severe disease, and monoclonal antibodies, which again, the timeline for development of a monoclonal is relatively quick. And those also can be effective under certain circumstances in early disease or in disease prevention. But that's the way it's going to be. We can't rely on developing something from scratch as a therapeutic unless it falls into an either existing agent or something like an antibody. Eric, I just want to delve a little deeper into one of your key points, which is in order to systematically study a therapy, we need to develop the workforce to be able to do that. And on the vaccine side, there were well-established clinical research groups well-positioned to take on the challenge with the rigor needed. On the therapeutic side, it was a bit more of catch where catch can in the sense that many different groups started studying things that they could because of access to the compound, what they heard about most recently, what made sense to them for how they could treat their community. And I think globally, the UK, as well as across the US and Europe, different things were tried in different systematic manners. And this gets back to what we discussed with Dr. Armstrong last week about workforce development and training the next generation of investigators, almost pre-positioning them to be ready to respond. But we have to have a diversified workforce geographically, therapeutically, to be able to respond when this emerges and to do the rigorous studies in a integrated manner quickly. And I think we will look back on the different kinds of studies that were done and how they were organized to most rapidly ensure rigor could be applied out of the starting gate so we achieved systematic answers rapidly rather than, as you mentioned, underpowered studies that were intriguing but were not able to definitively guide us. So I think workforce development is part of the investment we really need to make, particularly in our next generation of investigators who will lead us in future responses. 
Well, moving back to the basic science side, I think that that idea of workforce is very important. On one hand, we have underinvested for sure in many of the therapeutic agents that are possible for infectious diseases. In particular, antibacterial antibiotics is not a happening area of development, and we need more, and we're not really getting them for a variety of reasons we won't discuss right now. Antivirals have been a bit stronger, but they've been very concentrated on a small number of diseases, hepatitis C and HIV in particular. There have been strengths, though, and one of those strengths is, in particular, HIV research. There is a history of drug development. The targets for HIV are fairly well understood, and they can be generalized to some extent to other viruses, and so that there's an opportunity to develop drugs that could target those viruses. The techniques are very much the same. And then the clinical research in HIV is still very well established. And in fact, a lot of the successes in the platform trials that were done in the US in particular, were done using the infrastructure that had been developed for HIV. So I think full credit to the long-term investment that particularly the NIH has made in HIV research, which could get turned to making advances in this area as well. But we are still shorthanded, I think, on the basic science side in infectious disease in general. Looking at the workforce more broadly, how did the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 affect healthcare workers, both in caring for their patients and in taking care of themselves? One of the difficulties with infectious diseases is, of course, they're transmissible. And therefore, the people who are around patients who become ill are themselves at risk. And this is particularly true for healthcare workers. I think that there has been a lot of bravery shown by healthcare workers. Early on in the epidemic, it was entirely unclear how to protect oneself. And there were a huge number of healthcare workers infected, particularly very early in the epidemic in Wuhan, when there were a lot of infections and a lot of prominent deaths. But people continued to be at risk over time and they continued to take care of patients. So this was really a success and it really speaks to the commitment that caregivers have to patients. But it did make it much more complicated in a variety of ways. It meant that we didn't use some of the procedures that we know might have helped patients. Various forms of non-invasive ventilation, for example, were ruled out in a lot of settings because of the potential to increase transmission of disease. And in addition, the sort of caring part of caregiving uh, was really given short shrift. Understandably, patients, I think, felt like they were getting sick and perhaps dying alone because caregivers just couldn't spend the kind of time and give the kind of personal contact uh, needed. People were separated from their families. There were no visitors allowed in many cases. And it was a very difficult time for both patients and their caregivers. I do think that overall, the role of caregivers can't be overplayed, though. People have really stepped up. And they stepped up early on when it was very frightening but they continue to step up now at personal cost. And I think we should be very proud of the people that we work with and the people in our profession. So Steve, what Eric and I witnessed 15 months ago when we were on service caring for patients with COVID was how truly scary it is to manage a highly transmissible infection 
without understanding the transmission dynamics and not having the equipment needed to protect ourselves from getting infected. And this was something our staff, you know, the nurses, the physical therapists, the phlebotomists, the house staff, fellows, trainees, senior staff, everyone was facing how transmissible this was without having the equipment needed to protect ourselves. And I think it exposed the uncertainties of supply chain in the middle of the pandemic. So we don't have the ability to source equipment. It exposed how little we understood of the transmission so we could have the right procedures in place. It exposed how difficult it is being sick. And given these conditions, nobody could see you. No family, no friends. And caring providers had limited contact with patients because we didn't understand the transmission. And so the loneliness and the isolation was unbearable. But on the flip side of it, I've never seen a more caring environment where we really cared for each other together as healthcare workers and also for our patients in managing this uncertainty. And so the beauty of that caringness is inspirational and why many of us went into medicine. But it was very hard and very unsettling. And I think we need to learn lessons about how we care for each other when we have the uncertainties of a new pathogen that we're defining. And we need to realize that the supply chain for things like masks and gowns and gloves is very fragile when commerce goes down and international travel goes down and our global economy goes down. So our ability to source such simple things as swabs become really a major problem impacting all the downstream consequences of diagnostics, et cetera. And so it was a very challenging time, but I think a very inspirational time for how the medical community stood up to respond to this. And there are many lessons to be learned. I think to do justice to this look back and look forward, we're going to need a part two. So let's continue to talk about this next week. And for the moment, thank you, Eric. And thank you, Lindsay.